tanggal jelas. Ya karena kita nggak pernah mau ngomongin apa yang kita pernah alamin. Semua pura-pura kayak nggak pernah terjadi. Aku yakin kok nggak ada keluarga lain yang ngalamin kayak keluarga kita. Eh kita mau pindah. Kita nggak akan kemana-mana. Tinggal di rumah susun aman. Tinggal di rumah kalau ada apa-apa kita sendirian. Aku rasa ada sesuatu di rusun ini. Rusun Mandara di sana. Tolong, kalau saya tidak ke sana, akan banyak orang celaka. Ini soal hidup dan mati. Dari dulu kita nggak pernah tahu bapak kerjanya apa. Bahkan setelah ibu meninggal, bapak nggak pernah bilang dia mau kemana. Dia kemana-mana selalu bawa tas ini. Dan kalau pulang, dimasukin lemari, langsung dikunci. Pulang tadi kosong. Everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. This is Mike, and joining me as always, it's Mr. Venom. What's up, Venom? How are you? Greetings and salutations, Indonesian cultists. Yes, I'm doing very well, Mike. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. It's it's straight up gloomy outside today, and I yeah. love it. <laughs> I, it was gloomy here too, and I hate it. <laughs> it was 73 oh, today, and I'm freezing my ass off. I did not move to California to live in 70 degree weather. Oh, I know I sound ridiculous to somebody from the East Coast, which is me. I am from Connecticut, and I do under I, I I recognize that I sound ridiculous for calling it cold when it's 70 degrees out, but I'm used to 110, and that's what I prefer. So yeah, Ugh, I'm freezing. Today's high here was 57. Oh no, the high here was still 71 or 72, something like that. So yeah, it's. That's even like a low for us, I think. But uh, anyways, uh, join us. Oh, as always, again, um, it's Don and Ellie. What's up, Don? Yeah, doing great. Always happy to be here and uh, finally pulling my winter clothes out of storage. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, actually raining over here. So We got like two minutes of a drizzle here, and then it just stopped as quick as it started. So oh, I, don't yeah, we got... I don't even think the ground got wet. Yeah, I got. We had a uh, full-on like half-hour, not like heavy downpour, but you know, like it was an obvious rain. Yeah, not like Satan slaves type of rainstorm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> We're supposed to be getting rain later tonight, so we'll see. Hopefully, nothing messes with our power here. I feel like every year there's like the one rainstorm that knocks it out because it's like the whole region's unprepared for anything other than like a light drizzle. Um, <laughs> So it's like that one major freak out. It's like, oh, yeah, it's just rain. Never mind. Everything's fixed. But, uh, yeah, so today we are covering – this is interesting. This is a sequel that I, I didn't even know was being made until, like, all of a sudden, like, I think like a couple of weeks ago, uh, it showed up. Or, yeah, it showed up on Shutter. But I had heard something, like, maybe a week prior. Like, I, I can't remember if it was, like, a an article, a review, or something – and it was like Satan Slaves 2. And I was like, what? I was like, I didn't even know anything about this. But yeah, so it's the sequel of Satan Slaves titled Satan Slaves Communion. And uh, I'm pretty sure we all I uh, like the original Satan Slaves. A really good movie. Uh, we and... should mention, though, that this is actually the sequel to the remake, not the original. <laughs> yeah, uh, the remake of Satan Slaves. Um, so... Yeah, um, 
Uh, I guess so. I'll take the synopsis off IMDb. When the heavy storm hits, that Venom was just uh, referencing, it wasn't the storm that a family should fear, but the people and non-human entities who are out for them. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> kind of a- ambiguous uh, there, but uh, not, not bad. So uh, Joko Anwar, also the writer and director of this, which, you know, on on the surface, you know, that's a good thing because you're like, hey, I really liked the, the first one that he did. And uh, a lot of times with sequels, it's either not the same director or writer or maybe a combination. But this one, he's still listed as the director and writer. So that, and, uh, I guess, is a positive as far as, like, excitement or And, well, don't know, forget, he's also the... Going in. Well, I was going to say, don't forget, he's also the guy that did Impetigor, so... And the Queen of Black Magic. No, that was uh, Chemo Stambolo. He wrote, but he wrote it. He wrote the Queen yeah, of Black Magic. Yeah, he wrote it, but yeah. Um, in terms of writing and directing, yeah, he also did Impetigor. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. So, that is all true. <laughs> so, uh, let's do general thoughts. Uh, Satan Slaves Communion, Venom, what did you think? All right. Well, before I get into this uh, review, I do want to caveat this with my love for Joko Anwar. Um, the three movies that we've mentioned, uh, the first Satan Slaves, Impetigor, and The Queen of Black Magic, all three of them have been in my top ten for their respective years. So obviously when I see Joko Anwar doing a sequel to potentially one of the greatest Indonesian horror films ever made... I am obviously my interest is peaked. I'm very curious. I know, I know. I like to say that I try to not do expectations because that's where we end up kind of, you know, messing up our experiences because we expect too much or too little, whatever the case may be. But obviously, for somebody like me, when I see Joko Arnoir's name on something, I am incredibly excited. So. I guess I will start with, I yes, I did enjoy this movie. This movie is still got Joko Arnoir's kind of DNA all over it. It's got beautiful tension. Um, this movie is actually, for you trivia buffs, this is the very first Indonesian IMAX film actually shot with IMAX cameras. So you can kind of see some of the beautiful cinematography early on, some really nice camera work in this one, some long dolly shots, some pan shots. There's... There's one really nice shot of the camera kind of going up the side of a building and showing different people in their apartments. Um, It's just beautiful uh, camera work throughout. So, yeah. Um, It's too bad we didn't get to see it in IMAX. Obviously, all of our friends in Indonesia got to see it. But nah, since it didn't play in theaters out here, I would have adored to see this in, in, in an IMAX out here with the big audio and the big screen. But... Having watched it on Shudder, I will say I did still enjoy myself. Do I like this as much as Satan Slaves? I do not. But I also don't really like playing the compare game because, you know, again, you know, the compare game and and your undue expectations tend to ruin your experience. I've watched this twice in the last, what, 36 hours, and I will say that I, I do genuinely enjoy it. Um... I do have complaints, though. I, I feel like this is one of the most Americanized Joko movies I've ever seen. Like, you know, Satan's Slaves didn't really rely on jump scares. Yes, there were plenty of jump scares in there, but I felt like it didn't really rely on them. Whereas this film in the second and third acts, it's just jump scare city. And a lot of them are effective. Don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily talking about the quality of the jump scares so much as uh joko's use of them this is this is a very americanized sequel for you know this little brilliant movie from 2017 i mean even it's a much bigger cast um obviously a much bigger budget i mean you could tell that just from the fact that it's shot in imax um lots of returning stars from the first movie so you you know instantly if you're a fan of the first you've got familiar characters to kind of get behind of course our main heroine Rennie is back who i absolutely love and she's back a little bit chubbier than she was in 2017 but you know what i I still really like her i I think she's adorable with a little bit of extra weight that she put on since 2017 so yeah nice job uh tara basro is the actress's name but yeah, overall, I did like this story. I like the continuation of, you know, this family's kind of adventure. I, I like some of the revelations throughout the movie, um, especially with the dad and the missing younger brother, Ian, from the first movie, which we'll obviously get into in the spoiler section. But 
Um, overall, I am going to say that this is a slightly diminished return than Satan's Slaves. It's not the absolute masterpiece that I feel Satan's Slaves was, but this is still a great film. Um, probably because of the weakness of 2022's horror scene, this might still end up in my 10, making it four for four for Mr. Anwar. I think the only movie that, uh, that the only non-genre movie he's done since 2017 is like a, a superhero, an Indonesian superhero movie that I haven't seen, obviously. But It's um, actually really good. I like it. Is it awesome? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm interested then. Yeah, it, there's a great mythology to it. Um, it. It's called Gundala. Gundala, that's right. Yeah, uh, it's actually, it's really good. It's got uh, great mythology to it, uh, some fantastic action scenes, and uh, Taro's in it, too. So. Oh, nice. Okay, well, then I, I know what I'm watching next. <laughs> so, awesome. But yeah, like I said, um, maybe because of my love of Joko and my undue expectations, maybe I'd be a little bit lower on this movie. But like I said, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. I really, really like it. I'm on the border of loving it. But like I said, because... The second and third act of the film feel very Americanized to me. Um, it kind of loses a little bit of that mystique from the original movie. And then to kind of just finish off my general thoughts, I'm, I'm actually very glad that they did this movie at the time that they did, because now Evil Dead Rise has a, litmit, a litmus test to go up against when that comes out. And the similarities are pretty obvious, you know, with the original Satan Slaves taking place in a more rural, forested, wooded area with a smaller cast and then the sequel is you know a little bit more urban it's not like quite downtown uh you know cityscapes but they're still in jakarta proper and they're in an apartment building what are we looking at with evil dead rise the original couple of movies took place in a cabin in the woods you know secluded with a small cast and now we've got you know uh, an evil dead movie coming out with a large cast big budget taking place in a new york sky rise so um, fingers crossed that Evil Dead Rise can top this one because it now has a litmus test. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing for Evil Dead Rise at, as it has, I, I think it's going to be coming out the theaters. I think last I heard they want to do a simultaneous theater and streaming release like they did with the Halloween movies. So fingers crossed that's what we get so we can check out Evil Dead in the theaters, those of us who want to. But yeah, I just, even though Evil Dead Rise hasn't come out yet, and I have no idea what the story's about, I just saw these little similarities with this movie and that one. So, you know, fingers crossed that Evil Dead is as entertaining as this one, maybe even more. But yeah, overall, I still really enjoyed this movie, just maybe a half a step below Satan's Slaves. All right, well, I will kick it over a half step to uh, Don and Ellie to get your general thoughts on Satan Slaves Communion. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm right there with you in terms of the uh, Joko Anwar love. Um, I still consider Satan Slaves one of the holy trinity of the modern Indonesian scene, um, right up there with uh, May the Devil Take You and Queen of Black Magic, um, mm -hmm. sort of like the, the pillars that uh, are holding up this uh, modern renaissance of the Indonesian scene. So, yeah, um, I absolutely love the original as well. Um, even uh, the original 81 or 82, um, mm -hmm. I've seen conflicting re conflicting release dates for uh, the original, which um, I, I, I don't know where... Which, which uh, when it came out, it's um, I've seen 1980, I've seen 1982, so I I, I don't know where um, it actually came out because every site seems to give a different response. <laughs> the the most common one I've seen is 82, so I'm going with that. But uh, I, I mean, who knows? But yeah, the the original is uh, just fantastic, uh, just completely unadulterated rural horror. Uh, mixes in the jump scares fantastically uh you know I, I can't say enough good things about it uh this is a just a notch below i i think a lot of it is uh you know the repetitious the you know putting too many jump scares into it but honestly i don't mind it um i had just as much fun with it um i i do think the original is a better movie which is why i think a little bit more highly of it but i i still really enjoyed this one the family dynamic is just as much fun i love rainy and her brothers uh you know now she's got a little bit more of like a mother like mm -hmm. a like a parental kind of influence over them which you know it takes you know you, you kind of figure with there being a little bit of a time gap between this one because it's not a 
two or three months down the line. I think they said it's like two or three years later, or maybe even a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah, I think it's like uh, several years have passed. And, uh, you know, you get a little bit of their their um, family dynamics here. You get a little bit of the interaction with the residents in the apartment complex, which I really like because it kind of makes, makes the uh, second and third acts a little bit more harrowing when you finally have, you know, this much bigger cast of characters that you actually care about. Um, yeah, a lot of the first half a kind of just slow building dread a few little uh scenes here and there but yeah when this thing goes balls to the wall i had a lot of fun with it uh some great revelations uh kind of commonplace nowadays to uh do with this uh cult of uh figures that are signed secret packs with demons kind of feels a little overdone what with uh, may the devil take you one and two employing a similar thing um and even um i don't know if you guys have seen this one but a similar storyline cropped up in a, another indonesian film from this time period called uh, kuntalanik which uh again is about people making secret packs with demons that have now gone awry and are now forced with a demon that's come for revenge so kind of loses a little bit of this thing on that regard as well but in terms of general filmmaking quality, absolutely knocked that out of the park. Looks fantastic. A lot of fun with, uh, you know, striking matches or lighting lanterns and uh, something in the dark is moving ever closer or just changes direction. Now it's looking at you kind of a, you know, jump scare, which I, I really like because I'm, I'm a sucker for those kinds of scares. I, I can see where some would have a lesser opinion of it because it is kind of reliant on, oh, that thing is looking at me when I'm striking this match. Now I'm looking away from it and it's back to where its original position kind of a scare. I can see where that would kind of be a little bit of a, uh, de- a detriment where it repeats that trope a little bit too much. Uh Final act kind of runs out of steam where it uh, kind of loses a little bit of its luster, but I, I'm still on board. Um, I, I think the overall revelation just it feels kind of tacked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final, the uh, final, maybe five minutes just feels like an add-on where it didn't really need it. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, still I think one of the best of the year. Um, I'm definitely including this in my top 10 because uh not much else uh yeah not a whole lot of competition (laughs) so yeah this is um uh, i mean unless uh december really you know december really knocks it out with a couple of big releases because i i I can still see a couple that i've missed maybe cracking it but yeah in terms of uh overall content this year this is a an easy Easy, no doubt, top ten. Uh, maybe not top five like uh, Joko's other films are. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, Satan Slaves and even Impetigo were easy top fives. Uh, this one may not make it, uh, so it's probably a bit of, you know, maybe it's like the one little hiccup that he's had in his recent career. But, uh, I mean, if this is a hiccup, please sign me up for more of this because I still had enough fun with it. And uh, it's still quality and it still has uh, enough going for it that it's uh, worthwhile enough. So, yeah, uh, I mean, if this is a bad, you know, if this is uh, you losing your touch, uh, lose a little bit more and maybe actually make an average film. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, uh, for me, not as good as the original, but, uh, I mean, the original is a 10 out of 10. Uh, This would probably be at least maybe an 8, 8.5. So uh, definitely worthwhile and uh, definitely worth your time. Okay. Uh, yeah, honestly, I don't have a ton to add because I kind of echo what you guys have both already said. Um, the original is kind of like a masterpiece to me, and this one is still good. Just, you know, it didn't blow me away as much only because I think this one fell into like a a specific formula that I don't, I don't even dislike. I mean, I liked the jump scares and all that. I just think the first one managed to craft, you know, something a little more different than what I'm traditionally seeing, where this one, while the story and the the characters, the family aspect, it was all still in, like, top form to me. The, the relationships with the characters, 
Um, the motivations and justifications for everything were were right there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it did kind of fall into that trap of like like you guys are saying, we're like, oh, look down this hallway or look in this dark area, and now it's lit up and we see this and. And I'm always someone that, you know, I'm a, I'm an apologist for that kind of stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't, mm-hmm. I don't dislike it. I don't knock a movie for it. But when like a movie, you know, in, in the case of the first Satan Slaves where I feel like it goes beyond that stuff, then I do recognize like that next level of uh, like horror filmmaking. So this one, while it was still good, and I would definitely recommend this, um, and I hate to say that you... <laughs> I hate to uh, to react to a movie like this and say, "Oh, the diminishing returns," because that makes it sound like well, that makes it sound like uh, more of a criticism than it really deserves. Because in the sense that it's not, or in the sense that I don't view it as high as the original, I guess technically that that would qualify for diminishing returns. But like I said, the diminishing part is barely anything. It's still very mm-hmm. good. I still had fun with it. Um, one of the early jump scares and it got me, I won't give it away or like what the type <laughs> it did or anything, but it was, I thought that was very well crafted. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, Joko Anwar, the way he writes characters and the dynamic between them, uh, he, he, he has a knack for like making you very concerned and invested in what's happening to the people on screen. Like you, you don't want anything bad to happen to anyone. No one, really ever feels like fodder like oh they're just mm-hmm. in this movie for the purpose of dying like that's something that he is just done so well and if that continues into this one like uh, a lot of times with sequels because there's like the pressure to like oh we got to up the body count we got to up this and you start getting like characters that feel they're just written in there just so they can have more people to get scared or killed or whatever but not in this one. Everyone feels like they're there for the purpose. I really like the um, uh, the reporter character in this. I, I, what do you mean? Yeah, I thought that was like an interesting way to kind of like another returning character kick everything off. Character. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I liked I liked the fact. Um, oh, that cold and, opening uh, was great. Yeah. Oh yeah, I loved that cold opening <laughs> was fantastic and. I, I didn't realize that, uh, Venom, you had brought up the whole thing about the IMAX cameras and stuff. I didn't realize that, but now think, looking back, at it, I was like, that makes sense because, like, anytime there's, like, a shot of just, like, scenery or stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. you get the type of skyline type of shots, whether it's a building or just the scenery in the background, it looks so good. Like, I, I remember watching on Shutter, like, wow, this is, like, one of the better-looking Uh, files that I've watched on Shutter. It just looks beautiful. Fun to fun to just like look at and take in. Um, But I guess I'll leave my general thoughts at that because overall, yeah, I I I pretty much match what you guys said. Very good. Definitely, people should watch it. Um, It's just you know the the original is such a masterpiece to me that yeah, yeah, it's if if I was rating, I would the rating would be a little bit lower, but not much. Yeah. yeah, that's the that's kind of the problem with making a sequel to something that's considered a masterpiece. Is like, where do you go from masterpiece? Like, how do you improve on a masterpiece? You know, few few directors have done it, um, but you know, the movie is still really really fun. Uh, one of the major things that I feel that the original did that this one doesn't do nearly as well is the balance of the different style of antagonists in the first movie. Um, I'm not sure if we reviewed it on Fresh Cuts, but I do remember reviewing it on a show, and I remember saying how much I enjoyed the balance of a ghost story, a zombie movie, and and then a cult movie. It seemed like all three acts of Satan's Slaves were, you know, solidly... Uh, you know, they had one specific theme. You know, the first act is very much a ghost story. The second act, you start seeing bodies walking around in the woods around the cabin. And then the third act is where we actually get the reveal that this is all, you know, an organized, you know, thing that's actually a cult, blah, blah, blah. So so that was one of the things that I praised about it because, you know, Satan Slaves is one of those movies that you can't really pigeonhole into a subgenre. You can call it supernatural, I guess, would be the closest. But, I mean, to call it a ghost story would be slightly incorrect. To call it a zombie story would be slightly incorrect. And to call it a cult movie would be ever so slightly incorrect. But just the balance of those three I loved in the original. And we don't really get that here. 
Here we get a majority of a ghost story. Most of the scares in here are, you know, the jump scares with bodies, heads moving in different directions when the camera pans away, things like that. Um, we don't really get the zombie aspect of it. Maybe that first jump scare that Mike was talking about, that's probably the only one where we really get like a zombie aspect to this, where we actually well, see like a undead creature. <laughs> um, but, and that's, you know, and like I said, I don't want to make it sound like um, the movie falters necessarily because of it. It's just one of the things that I genuinely enjoyed about the first one that this one maybe doesn't deliver. It's still a wonderful story with great characters. And to the I point that Michael, that. what's that? I was going to say, you can probably make a case that there would be something about the uh, shrouded figures that that could probably be more like a zombie thing. Um, but e even still, those are um, Pokemon. Uh, yeah, ghost type. Mm -hmm. So uh, even that wouldn't necessarily be um, completely accurate. Uh, you could probably, like I said, you could probably make a case that the shrouded figures walking around can be zombies, but um, you, the I mean, sadly, we don't really see any shrouded things walking around until the very, very end, until the final scene. That's why I'm saying that the the zombie aspect of the original isn't really here. We don't really see the bodies like walking around the hall. We don't see them get up. It, it, it's, it's always like a camera movement where the camera pans away and then pans back and they're in a different position. Um, that's why I'm saying that the maybe the zombie, quote unquote, zombie element isn't quite there. Again, not a major nitpick by any stretch. Just something that I always praised about Satan's Slaves was that balance of almost three different kinds of movies all in one big movie. And I, it's just one of the things I always praised about it. Um, this one is, like I said, it does turn into a cult movie once we get to the end. The final act is very solidly a cult film. Um, but again... It's, uh, you know, the balance isn't there. The balance between a supernatural slash zombie slash cult movie that the original hit. So, you know, that, that's just like when I say this movie is like maybe just a half step below, that's kind of my main part. But a lot of a lot of the jump scares I did really enjoy when I say that this movie is very Americanized and has maybe an excessive amount of jump scares. It's not necessarily a negative thing, because as I mentioned in my general thoughts, the jumps are still mostly effective. Like I didn't roll my eyes at any one jump scare. You know, there's no fake jump scares in here. There's no cats jumping through windows and, you know, stupid shit like that. Like all the jumps are earned and most of them are legitimately effective. So I'll still give him his absolute credit for that, especially in the third act when, you know, uh, Rennie is walking around the uh, building you know, chanting her prayer. And every time she flips her robe up, suddenly there's, you know, dead bodies around her. And then when she flips it again, they're gone. Like, I really like that. The, uh, the jump scare with the little girl and her three friends who were killed earlier in the film when she lights the match and they're all standing around her again, expected, but very effective. So, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm downplaying the jump scares. I'm just saying that I'm surprised there's as many as there are here. Like I said, I feel like this is Joko's most Americanized film. Like he's trying to, you know, um, make some headway in America, which honestly he already has. It's not like he needed to Americanize his films to do that. I mean, three genre films in a row, two that he directed, wrote and directed, and one that he wrote are brilliant movies. So I don't know. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I don't I don't want to make it sound like a necessarily a complaint, but you know, it's just one of the things that I praise the original for that I'm not really able to praise this one for. Um, but I still really like, the, you know, for the most part, I like the story. I like the continuation of the story. I like the story beats. I agree with Don that maybe the final kind of um, reveal might be a little mm, convoluted, if you will. But at the same time, it wasn't like terrible. I've seen a lot worse <laughs> by far. Yeah. So. You know, um, you know, I, I still, like I said, I, I totally agree with Don. This is top 10 material for 2022. Might not have been top 10 in 2018, but here, it, you know, at, at least as of right now, the first week of November, it's looking like it is like in the low part of my top 10. So we'll see where it ends at the end of the year. But yeah, I still, you know, I, I definitely don't want to get it twisted. This is still a great movie that should be experienced by anyone who loves Asian horror. Um, and if you're a fan of Joko, then there's just no reason uh, for you not to watch it. So, yeah. Yeah. Can't really say enough good things about it. Oh, man. Anything else uh, anybody wants to bring up? 
I'm good on general thoughts. Yeah, right. generals. Yeah, like I said, on general, I'm pretty good. So. All right. Well, the walkthrough is going to be pretty weird today because, you know, I've watched it twice in the last 36 hours, but I may not have completely retained every bit of it. But, you know, the basic story that we're looking at here, we, our movie opens with a cold open. We see Budiman, or Budiman, however you pronounce it. Uh, he, he is a returning character from the original, the reporter that helped out the family, you know, during the first series of events. He is now back, but this but this first scene is actually takes place in 1955. And what's funny, or at least what I found funny, is that I kind of have a connection to this movie because this movie says that um, on a particular day, every 29 years, some major catastrophe happens. And what is that day? My friends, it's April 17th, Mr. Venom's birthday. So every every 29 years on my birthday, apparently something awful happens in Jakarta. So... I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I, I just felt that like, you know, a little personal connection to it. So that kind of made me happy. Connection or attack? Ah, either way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, like I said, our movie opens April 17th, 1955. We see Budiman. He's been called to a um, some kind of I, I don't know if it's a church, but basically some building, you know, off the edge of a cemetery. Uh, he meets a police officer friend of his who tells him, I need you to see something, but he's being really cryptic about what's actually going on inside the building. When they actually finally walk in, what we see is about two dozen of those pokan type, um, you know, not spirits, but the, the actual bodies of these people that are shrouded, almost mummified when they're buried. And they're basically all in the kneeling position, all kneeling towards a very familiar character, if you remember the original movie, the character of the mother, uh, she is back. Uh, what was her name? Ranadam, something like that. I remember her more as the mother, because um, that was her name in the credits uh, on this movie and the last one. But in the film, they actually do give her a name. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so like I said, we've got these bodies, the poke cans all wrapped, and they're all kneeling, you know, in like a prayer position, uh, towards this picture of the mother, and that's our cold open. We then go to modern-day Jakarta, and we see a familiar face. Once again, we see Rennie, our, our beautiful heroine from the first film. She's obviously a little bit older, a little bit wiser. She has more of a maternal instinct now, because now with her mother passing away in the first movie, and yes, folks, I'm going to be spoiling the, the original movie, too. So if you've seen neither of these movies, by all means, pause now and go watch, at the very least, go watch the original and give this one a chance, too, so that you can kind of understand what we're going at. One of the things that I mentioned that I forgot to mention is that um, I, I mentioned it when we reviewed Wormwood Apocalypse earlier this year that I don't like when filmmakers make a sequel that forces the viewer to see the original. Obviously, it's a good. It's always a good idea to see the original before going to see a sequel. But I always respect sequels that are great standalone. This movie is still a great standalone movie, but so, you're missing so much if you don't watch the original film. Even little stuff like inside jokes. I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's a scene in the film where um, two of the kids, uh, uh, Bondi and uh, the kid who keeps getting abused by his dad, they're basically talking and the kid's talking about how his mom is bedridden, but that they can't go too far from the building in case she needs them. And they, you know, they need to be able to be close enough to hear her. We see Bondi actually say, oh, you could probably just give her a bell and then she could just ring the bell every time she needs you. But then you see the look on Bondi's face drastically change because he remembers the hell that that bell you know, cause his family in the first film. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into it, but if you saw the first film, you know what I'm talking about with the bell. So literally as soon as, as soon as Bondi realized what he said, he's like, Oh no, no, forget it. Forget it. No, don't use a bell. The, the, the building is small enough that you should be able to hear anyway. Like it's an inside joke that means nothing if you've never seen the first one, but I genuinely chuckled when I saw it here. Oh, I belly laughed at it. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I, I actually legitimately belly laughed. I actually had to rewind it a few seconds because yeah, that that was really great. That facial drop. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, literally the instant the words left oh, yeah. his mouth, he's like, oh, shit, what did I say? <laughs> Wait, I should have said that. So, yeah, yeah that, that was facial, really cool. The facial drop. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very awesome mood drop there. <laughs> All right. So 
After a very obnoxious title card, very similar to The Conjuring, um, you know, with the loud shrieking audio that scares the shit out of you if you're not paying attention. Uh, we basically, as I said, were reintroduced to uh, Rennie, her two brothers, her dad, who obviously all survived the first movie. And um, obviously they're without their little brother, Ian, who was taken in the first film. We don't know that he was that he is dead or alive, but we just know that he is missing. He is taken. And um, and of course, the mom passed away, as I said. So we've got this small little family now uh, moved to uh, Jakarta into this apartment building that's like a state run building. So it's like the, it's basically a project. It's decrepit. It's literally built right on the seashore where the government knows it could get washed away by a good enough flood. Um, but obviously, you got a lot of poor families living there. We get a great scene early on in the film where Rennie is taking out the garbage and she's walking by all the, because it's so hot in Jakarta and air conditioning isn't common. Most people will keep all their windows and doors open so that they can get a nice cross breeze. So as Rennie is walking down the hall to take out the garbage, she, you know, curiosity gets the best of her and she looks in every apartment as she walks by. And in every apartment, there's people doing weird shit like, one apartment, there's a guy who's in a living room. There's a TV on in the living room, but he's not facing the TV. He's facing an empty wall, but laughing like, you know, like he's looking at the television. The next apartment he, uh, that Rennie walks by, there's an older couple where the woman is looking out the door at Rennie, smiling. And the old man he almost looks dead, like his mouth is agape. I mean, he literally looks like he just saw something that, you know, scared him to death. And then finally, she walks by one last apartment to see a guy just standing inches from his wall, you know, facing his wall, all very Blair Witch style, just kind of facing the wall, not doing anything, just, you know, being quiet. And then she goes and she throws away the garbage. But when she turns around, all of the people from the apartments are in the hall looking at her. So I thought that was, you know, that was effective without being like a major jump scare necessarily. I thought that was a pretty effective little thing. Um, and then we get a major, um, incident in the apartment building. The, obviously I've already said that the, the apartment building is very decrepit. So, um, so it has a very old elevator that everyone must use a shitty elevator. That's constantly getting stuck. We see a couple of scenes earlier in the film where the elevator gets stuck for like a second or two. So what happens here is the elevator gets stuck and doesn't move. It's literally stuck, and it's all the way up on the 13th floor, 14th floor. There, we'll get into that. There's a little bit of a mystery of how many floors this building has. But basically, the elevator is all the way up to the top floor. Suddenly, it gets stuck. And what happens is uh, some folks down at the bottom level of the building, they kind of force open the elevator doors and they look in the shaft and they see that the elevator stuck up top. So they're like, oh, fuck it, let's get out of here and use the stairs. But um, earlier in the film, one of the residents had dropped a bunch of money down into the elevator shaft. So now with the elevator car stuck up on the 14th floor, these four little girls that we see playing hopscotch multiple times in the film literally jump into the elevator shaft and start picking up all the coins that the woman had dropped earlier. Of course, the inevitable happens. The car starts to loosen. It starts to actually move. Um, they are able to get Winzu, uh, who's one of the little kids um, in, that lives in the building. He is the only one who's able to get out of the car, the elevator car, before the doors kind of slam shut. And then literally the elevator car just goes to a free, a free fall, 13 floors down. Luckily, the, of the four girls that are, you know, kind of collecting up the money at the bottom of the shaft, one of them looks up and notices, oh, shit, we got to get out of here. The elevator's coming down really fast. The other three are too busy collecting up their change. So they, they're not heeding this girl's warning. And suddenly we get probably the best blood splat in the movie where the elevator shaft does indeed fall on the three remaining girls down in the shaft. And the fourth girl basically just gets drenched with a splash of blood <clears throat> probably the you know the bloodiest scene in the movie yeah i will say this movie doesn't have a lot of blood and gore but it also doesn't need it you know this style of movie doesn't necessarily need that so i'm okay yeah with that it. elevator gag was still really good though <laughs> oh great blood splat on a you know a little girl like what like an eight-year-old girl literally covered in blood and then she screams at the top of her lungs it's a very yeah. effective scene 
I mean, you could you could look at it as almost funny, or you could look at it as sad. Either way that you take it, I think it's effective. So yeah, rock on with that scene. So like I said, uh, the three little girls are crushed, so they're basically turned into a pulp, and unfortunately, everyone inside the elevator car also dies except for Rennie's dad. He's the only one who survives. And he does get a leg injury that affects him the rest of the movie. He now has a very prominent limp the rest of the movie. So, you know, he he mentions how the police were questioning him hard because he was the only survivor, almost like he might have had something to do with this. Mm, there's There might be something more to that, but we'll get back to that in a little bit. And uh, basically after this, um, the, the storm starts. Basically the town knew that a storm was coming, a major rainstorm. So basically, a lot of the um, residents in this building decide to kind of go more inland. They leave the building, leaving a very small cast of characters actually in the building. And most of them are dead because it's basically the people um, that died in the elevator. For those who don't know, in Indonesia, when someone dies, the family can just take care of the corpse themselves. They don't have to get authorities involved or anything. So we see all these families kind of you know, doing the Pokan uh, treatment, you know, kind of um, wrapping them up in bandages so that they're only their face is showing. Uh, they'll, they'll put coins over the eyes and then like um, tissue in the nostrils. I don't know why. I'm sure there's some cool reasoning for that, but uh, I didn't find any in my research. I actually did look up death rituals in Indonesia to see if, if a lot of the stuff that we see in the movie was accurate. And from what I could find, it is. They do, you know, they, they keep the family, the, the person, no matter what their body condition is in, they do keep them there at their home. They wrap them, they mummify them there, and then they have, you know, the equivalent of their last rites. Obviously, you know, there's no Christians here. They worship Allah, but um, it's kind of the equivalent of their last rites where a holy man will, you know, you know, basically say some kind of scripture, you know, to help their soul pass to the next life, blah, blah, blah. And then at this point, uh, we lose power. So now the building is without, without power. So everyone is basically just uh, using flashlights and matches for pretty much the majority of the rest of the film, which, you know, Don kind of mentioned how some of the scenes are a little dark, <clears throat> which isn't a major problem by any stretch. I, I still, I, I don't always hate dark scenes because they're intended to be dark. They're supposed to, you know, kind of add to the atmosphere and the, the fear factor of the whole thing. So, you know, if I don't see every single little thing on screen, I don't always mind. And in this case, I was very okay with it. Very effective. So what happens is we have one holy man in the building who still hasn't completed all the rituals that he needs to do for all these dead people. So he actually ends up running into one of Rennie's brothers, the older brother, and asking him if he could help him um, basically go apartment to apartment of all the people that died in the elevator accident and just make sure that like their windows, the apartment windows aren't open, that there's no water leaking, you know, onto the bodies, you know, onto the apartment floor or whatever the case may be. At one point, the holy man starts to complain about a pain in his back and his lower back. So um, he remembers that there's still one more family, a couple that died up on the 13th floor that need to be checked on, and he ends up send. Of course, he ends up sending Rennie's brother to go and um, to collect, uh, or to make sure, like I said, to make sure that the bodies are fine and that the apartment's sealed up nice and tight. Of course, we get a jump scare here where we see um, Rennie's brother looking out the window. Uh, he does not have a flashlight. He is relegated to a box of matches. So, of course, you know we get the kind of Hellhouse style. Uh, jump scares where, you know, he lights a match, the bodies are laying flat on the floor, the match goes out, he lights another match, suddenly both bodies are looking at him. They're not sitting up, just their heads are tilted, you know, very much like the clown in Hell House, in, in the basement of Hell House. Um, one of the things that I always praised Hell House for, though, is that they didn't do audio stings with their jump scares. It was the kind of thing that if you weren't paying attention, you would actually miss some scares in Hell House. Here, there's no chance of you missing a jump scare here. The, the audio cue is so fucking loud every time there's a jump scare. Even if you're like looking down at your phone, you know something scary just happened. So kind of interesting. Again, this is what I'm kind of gearing towards when I say this is kind of an Americanized um, Joko Arnoir movie. Not a major complaint, like I said, just an observation. So 
Um, after um, Rennie's brother goes and checks on the apartment, um, oh, he does actually have an interaction with the bodies because uh, at one point, as you know, he he walks into the house, uh, the apartment. He closes the window because it was left open. As he walks out of the apartment, he thinks he hears something. So then he, you know, we basically get the exact same jump scare. He lights a match. He sit. This time he's kneeling right next to the bodies. They look completely normal. The match goes out. He lights another one. Bam. They're looking directly at him eye to eye. He freaks out and runs out of there. Ends up running into a bully uh, that we see earlier in the film harassing probably the, the most beautiful woman in this um, movie. She's rumored to be a call girl. I don't think she is. I think at one point in the film she actually says that she works at a bar or something like that or a club or whatever. So, um, but she's just you know she's this beautiful, well, um, well proportioned woman. You know, very Amazonian looking. So everybody just instantly thinks she's a prostitute, which is obviously unfair. But you know, um, anyway, um, like I said, Rennie's little brother ends up running into this bully who had an interaction with the with this girl earlier. Um, they end up um, breaking into a neighboring apartment. Basically, the bully kid um, was using a fork to kind of loosen one of the bricks in the adjacent apartment. Now, obviously, he was doing it to rob the place, you know, obviously something nefarious behind him, you know, trying to remove that loose brick. But in the process, he ends up dropping his fork in the other apartment and he is not big enough to get into the hole to go back in there and get the fork. And according, according to him, he has to get that fork because his mother will absolutely notice that particular fork missing and he's going to catch shit for it. So he basically asks Rennie's little brother to go through the hole for him, which he does comply after a little bit of prodding, gets in there and starts kind of looking through the apartment. He finds the fork and hands it to the kid right away. But while he's in there, he starts looking through like photo albums and things like that. They start looking at pictures of the building in different stages of construction and, of course, deprecation, too, because obviously modern day the building looks like shit. And they realize, uh, looking at these pictures both in the uh, photo album and on the wall, that this building used to be a cemetery. Yes, um, based on uh, some classic pictures, a series of pictures taken every 29 years we see this one tree that this one very uh, distinctive tree. We see that tree in all of the pictures, but then, like I said, the first couple of pictures at the cemetery next to the tree. And then the final picture, which is the one taken in 1955 shows the building. It shows the cemetery gone, but the tree is still there and the building is there. So I'm not sure we could be looking at a poltergeist situation, you know, building built on a uh, um, cemetery. Who knows? So, uh, nobody really addresses that point anymore after the movie, you know, so it, it's kind of up to our interpretation. Uh, so after they uh, realize that this building was next to a cemetery and they figure out the every 29 years based on the dates of all the pictures on the wall, they figure out that every 29 years something major happens in this area. Um, so apparently the, this place is haunted by Pennywise as well, which I'm on board for. I got no problem with that. I'd love to see a Joko Arnoir Pennywise film. That would probably be sick as hell. <laughs> um, and obviously the spooks uh, continue ramping up. You know, you get more and more jump scares. Um, we get that great jump scare with the, the one little girl that survived the elevator accident. I mentioned it earlier where once again, she's lighting matches and she lights a match and suddenly all three of her friends in zombified form are basically surrounding her. I thought that was once again, a very effective jump scare. Um, at one point they try to see if they can, um, the flooding starts getting really bad. As I said, it's been raining this whole time. And at this point, the basement of the building is completely flooded. And because of some exposed wires or a generator or whatever down in the basement, the water is electrified. So they can't even go into it if they wanted to, to try to get out of the building. Uh, they, they end up going back up into the building to see what they can find. Um, Rinny at one point ends up opening up a like a cabinet in her house that her father keeps locked. She ends up stealing some keys from him while he's sleeping. 
She opens up this cabinet. She finds a briefcase. She doesn't open the briefcase now. She takes the briefcase with her and just starts, uh, you know, continuing to search the building for her brothers. Um, the power is still out, obviously. Uh, multiple people are separated from each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, let's see, where are we at this point? At this point, the girl who everyone is accusing of being a sex worker, um, we, we kind of see her final demise. Basically, she ends up getting chased down a hall from by some spirits or voices, whatever it is that she sees or hears is chasing her down the hall. She ends up jumping into the, the trash chute to try to hide from this spirit, whatever it is that's chasing her down the hall. <clears throat> she jumps in the trash chute. Anybody who's lived in an apartment building knows about these trash chutes. Like every floor, there'll be like a, you know, a, a door that you can open and throw all your trash in and it falls down into the, uh, the big dumpsters down in the basement. So, like I said, she's hiding in that kind of trash chute type thing. And she's hearing the voices. She's hearing a voice calling out her name. Finally, at one point, she hears the chute door open above her, the same one that she climbed into. She looks up and she sees one of these Pokan ghosts, you know, still shrouded in, you know, in the white uh, robes. And <laughs> the weirdest thing happens. This spirit gives birth orally. <laughs> like literally a baby comes out of her mouth and it looks like she's birthing this baby. Uh, the baby ends up falling down onto uh, our poor girl's face, which ends up making her lose grip. She ends up falling down the elevator chute. And at one point her body gets caught and bent in half backwards. She's actually bent backwards in the elevator, excuse me, in the trash chute basically trapped in there until somebody gets her body out because she's completely fucked. So that's the end of our pretty girl in this film. Um, let's see. <laughs> Did you guys notice the Texas Chainsaw camera flashes that we get in this movie? Like they even use the sound effect? Yeah, um, that was <laughs> kind of we kind of jarring because they, they do it for the sequence where she's trying to wake up and it comes off kind of weird where it, it doesn't really. It, it adds just like you were saying, more of that westernized feel to the to the film. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, um, I, I I kind of forgot to expand on the mystery of the building floors. Um, according to the tenants of the building, there are thirteen floors to the building. But when the boys find the pictures on the wall um, of the building at various stages of construction, they actually count fourteen levels, and they're like, wait a minute. There's 14 levels here, but we the elevator only goes up to 13. What's going on? At this point in the film, after, you know, our alleged sex worker gets bent in half, um, Rinny and her brothers actually accidentally find an entrance to the 14th floor. And uh, when they walk into a room, the very first room on the 14th floor, they walk into, lo and behold, there's their fucking little brother who went missing in the first movie. Um, obviously everybody's very standoffish. They're not hundred percent sure if that's actually him, if he's a spirit, like nobody runs up to him and hugs him and, oh my God, where have you been? Everybody's like very standoffish to the point where even when the dad saw his, um, saw his son in the flesh, he actually attacks him. Uh, he, he's so convinced that it's not really his son. He flat out attacks him. He has to be held back by Remy and, uh, and her, her brother's. And then we get a little bit of a reveal. Um, throughout the movie, we hear about, and I'm so sorry that I skipped this, but throughout the movie, we actually hear about a sniper, um, someone who's literally is responsible for killing hundreds of people. And, you know, there's no clues as to who this sniper is that's just going around basically shooting anybody with a tattoo. It's a, it actually turns into a little bit of a joke between the brothers where, you know, the younger brother's like, well, I'm not going to get a tattoo now if I'm just going to get shot for it. So, yeah, this sniper has basically been taking out guys with tattoos, which means I'd be fucked since both of my arms are covered. <laughs> so, um, and like I said, we find out that the dad is the sniper. Why is the dad the sniper? Did he just go crazy and just start killing people? No, my friends. He made a deal with mother. Uh, basically, because Ian, the, you know, the younger brother was taken in the first film, 
He makes a deal and basically, you know, um, the deal is that he will exchange a thousand human souls to get his son back. Uh, I'm not sure how far into the thousand he got, but do you remember the briefcase that I just mentioned that Rini grabbed from her father's cabinet? At this point in the film, she opens the briefcase and it's just index fingers. Literally, the whole briefcase is filled with index fingers, just a bunch of, I don't know why that, I, I'm assuming he's keeping the finger just as proof to, you know, a uh, mother that he's actually doing what he's supposed to be doing. I don't know. It doesn't look like there's a thousand fingers in there by any stretch, but, you know, definitely a few hundred or a few dozen up to maybe a hundred or two. So, yeah, that's where we get the reveal that, you know, dad made a deal with mother to get his son back. Um, but unfortunately, because he didn't finish the task, dad ends up getting sacrificed at the end. And how does he end up getting sacrificed? Definitely not something I expected to see in a Joko Arnoir film. Um, but basically, once Rini and her brother are uh, and her brother's are taken, you know, they find this secret area on the 14th floor. They basically find all of the bodies, all the all the people that died in the elevator are there at the ceremony. And they're all like on their knees bowing to the mother. We see, we kind of see the mother show up and uh, we see Ian there. We see, you know, who everyone thinks is the little brother from the first movie that got taken, whether he is or not. I mean, we never really get a full explanation if that's just like a demon in disguise or whatever but basically uh we see the little kid almost like orchestrating the uh the cult like and literally um the kid will say something like horses and then suddenly horses will show up in the room there'll be four horses all facing away from each other and yes my friends when i talk about four horses you know what's coming Dad is drawn and fucking quartered. Unfortunately, because the scene is so dark and they're utilizing kind of a strobe effect with the lights going in and out, uh, we don't really see it as well. You do see the initial snap of all the limbs kind of come off, but you know that's probably the extent of the drawing and quartering. We end up seeing the cult then taking Bondi, the older of Rini's brothers, and setting him up to now be drawn and quartered. They're putting the ropes ar you know, around his ankles and his wrists. But as they're doing that, here comes the hero, Bundy Man. Yes, he shows up. And earlier in the film, they showed him with a gun in his hand. And I, and I thought to myself, what's a gun going to do you against do for you against spirits? That just seems silly. But no, he comes in here. He starts shooting his gun towards the mother. Um, you know, uh, Bondi is able to get out of his <laughs> bondages, no pun intended. And while Bundy Man is shooting at mother, he ends up pulling out this torture device, which I fucking forgot the name of. It's that torture device that kind of looks like a pear. And it, it can either be inserted into the mouth or the anus. And when it's twisted, it basically spreads open. So if, if you put it in the mouth, you're basically dead because it's, you know, it's basically going to pop your skull open. But if they put it in the anus, you don't die right away. You, you end up you know, surviving for days, if not weeks, with these awful internal injuries that, of course, will eventually kill you. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm sure most people would know the, the article, um, the actual item once they see it. It's kind of a famous torture um, device. Maybe not as you know popular as like a guillotine or an Iron Maiden or something like that, but it's a pretty gnarly thing. Um, basically, Bundy Man shoots at Mother, and then he pulls out that device. So apparently Mother must have been killed with that device because she is scared of it. Uh, when he opens, he basically pulls it out. He opens it so that it's completely spread out. And instantly we see Mother's face kind of distort into a very demonic looking face. She ends up crawling back into the upper corner of the room to try to avoid what's going on. At this point, uh, Bundy Man basically gets everyone together and says, okay, let's all get to the basement. But of course, you know, the basement is flooded and the water is electrified. So how the hell are they going to get out? But luckily, somebody had the forethought to set up a boat, probably Bundy Man. That's probably how he got there to the building because the flooding had already started. So that's probably Bundy Man's boat. He probably took a boat out there. 
docked the boat right in the basement of the building. And now he's able to get everybody out of the building. And that's basically the final shot of our film is um, Rini, her brothers, Winsu, um, Boondi Man, and maybe one other person that I can't think of, uh, basically just escaping the building. The area is completely flooded. It literally looks like a building is sticking out of an ocean, like the way that it's shot. Because the building, there's not really anything around the building, even though it is in Jakarta proper. I mentioned earlier that it's on the seashore, which, you know, um, um, like most corporations wouldn't build a building there. But this, since this is a state run building, they probably just grabbed the cheapest piece of property they can get and threw this building up quickly. Hence why it's so easily flooded out since it's right near the ocean, blah, blah, blah. And that, my friends, is Satan's Slaves Communion. I definitely did not do it justice. Like I said, I skipped a lot of set pieces, a lot of really cool jump scares throughout. Um, but yeah, like I said, still a very effective film, a great continuation of the story. I'm very happy that I watched it. Just like I said, maybe just a half step below the original, which is not an insult in any stretch. This is still a great movie, well worth watching. A high recommend from me. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's not much else to add. Uh, I, I think they're leaving it open for part three with the explanations that they give, which I don't know if I really necessarily want. Oh, right. I forgot to give that explanation with the yeah, because, and everything. Yeah, yeah because there's the uh, sequence when they're on the boat and they explain the the whole ordeal. It sounds like they're setting up part three, and I don't know if I really want a part three. I, I kind of want this to be like a two-part thing. I mean, you know, after honestly, I would have preferred it to stay one movie, but and not not to say that this is bad yeah. by any stretch. But I'd be okay with a third movie. I mean, I know trilogies usually don't end well, cinematic trilogies, unfortunately. But uh, I have trust in Joko, even though this is, like I said, less than a half a step below uh, Satan Slaves 2017. I still have faith in him. I, I you know, I, I still am very excited to watch anything that he does. He actually did an episode of Folklore. I don't know if anybody watches Folklore on Netflix. It's an Indonesian uh, anthology horror series that uh, came that out. In, not Indonesian. It's um, all of Asian. Um, oh, it's just episode. all Asian. Okay. Oh, yeah. I've, I've only watched the first two episodes, and they were both Indonesian. So I just assumed. <laughs> yeah, I think the others are helmed by uh, other international stories. I think one's from Thailand, one's nice. from Malaysia, and if memory serves, I think one's in Singapore. Um, I, I don't know the others, but I, yeah, I, I haven't gotten to Joko's episode yet. But I am yeah, I, I believe I be, if if that's the one I'm thinking of, I think that's uh, an international collaboration. Yeah, definitely. They're all subtitled, you know, and whatever the audios and whatever the original language is. So like I yeah. said, I'm only a couple of two to three episodes in. Highly recommend it if you like Asian horror. Um, I, I don't know why I didn't watch this series three years ago when it dropped. But just this past Halloween, this, this whole October, because I was doing found footage all month for my challenge, I wanted to kind of pepper it with some anthology stuff. Uh, maybe not um, films, but, you know, kind of series like stuff like the new creep show, you know, stuff like that. I wanted to pepper it with. And then I saw folklore in my queue and had completely forgotten about it. And then I'm looking through the director's list and there's Joko's name. And I'm like, God damn it. I should have watched this three years ago. So, yeah, I'm running through that series now and uh, I'll follow up when I get to Joko's episode. <laughs> so you're so what you're saying is you're not sure if. uh you're ready to see Satan Slaves ends. <laughs> oh God! Does every trilogy have to end with ends now? God, I hope that's. I hope that doesn't turn into the new, um, you know, breaking into electric boogaloo joke. <laughs> so well, I was gonna Satan say Slaves like... ends is gonna open up with a Corey scene. No! <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like there's a part four in space kind of a joke. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap up uh, this episode for Satan Slaves on Fresh Cuts. But let's find out if we have anything new for people to listen to. So, Venom, do you have some? Uh, let's see. Cre um, Creature Comforts episode 12 did drop last week. It is episode, like I said, episode 12. We look at 2006's 
Cemetery Gates, a movie that I had never heard of before Derek brought it to the table, and it's actually a pretty enjoyable movie, so check out that episode if you can um, to hear my very conflicted uh, review of that film, but I still did enjoy it. Um, let's see, Crystal Lake Gift Shop, episode two is still the latest episode with Lacey Liu as our guest, looking at the second episode of Friday the 13th, the series titled The Poison Pen. Uh, we'll be recording episode three very soon. Now that October is over, my you know my free time is you know back to a normal amount of free time, so I can get back to recording. Uh, main show, uh, No More Room in Hell, episode forty nine is still in the planning stages. We have picked our our films for the episode, but obviously we are looking for a time and day to get together. <clears throat> Hopefully that'll be sooner than later. And do I have anything else? And no, I think that's it. Um, I mentioned this on the last episode. I'll mention it again. Um, all three of our Cuts of the Chase guest spots were moved uh, because October just got away from all of us. And so you can look for the three of us to be on uh, the 12 Days of Chase Miss series on Cut to the Chase. That'll be uh, recording and airing in December. So check those out and various other guest spots that I can't think of off the top of my head right now. So, yeah, that's it for me. All right, Don, how about you? Yeah, uh, as mentioned, Creature Comforts is available. Um, I believe we're also going to be in the planning stages for the next episode. Uh, That one, which should be out towards the end of the month, early December, if uh, everything falls through. Um, Other than that, uh, you know, like you said, the uh, cut to the chase uh, thing. uh, The only other thing I got is season one of the Horror Countdown. Uh, gonna be starting up pre-production for season two shortly, so I'll have the episodes ready for that when the new year drops, but, uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, not much else. All right, and for me, a whole bunch of nada, so (laughs) just, uh, keep tuning in to Fresh Cuts, and then, like Venom said, it sounds like... From what we talked to with our other co-host, Derek, that November seems pretty open yeah. with availability, at least right now. Um, but, it, man, it's deceiving because it's like we're already going to be going into the second weekend of November when it seems like November just started. I so while, while there is plenty of time, we do need to get something or hopefully get something locked up just so we know yeah. to say, hey, this is when we're recording. But it sounds like it's going to happen in November, so that's good. And then, um, like Venom said, we might be doing another episode of Crystal Lake Gift Shop this month as well. Yeah. So things should be uh, picking back up very soon. But uh, other yeah. than that, yeah, uh, we'll be back next week for another Fresh Cuts. I don't think anything's theatrical this week, at least not wide. So uh, it'll probably be picking something on VOD. Uh, cool. All right. Well, with that said... Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back in a week or a week-ish for the next episode of Fresh Cuts. So let's say bye to our listeners. Later. If I ever die in Indonesia, just cremate me. Please don't wrap me in bandages. Yeah, please stop making packs with uh, demons or the devil because uh, (laughs) it doesn't seem to turn out very well down the road. So cut it out.